Hello everyone, it's July 12th, 2022. This week, Capstone had a close call. You could say it was more of a no call. It went silent, but then thankfully had a change of heart and decided to get back in touch. It's always scary when a spacecraft does that. So let's see if we can figure out the how and why and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 367 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I fucked my toe up, guys. It sucks. I've never broken a toe. I think I once fractured my wrist when I was Oof. a kid. Oh, that's that's even worse. My mother was like unconcerned. She was like, it's not broken. And so she just kind of put like a little sling on it or something or other. And uh, I don't think it healed properly because to this day, it kind of clicks when I turn my wrist a certain way. So Oof. great parenting. <laughs> mm. I mean, other than that, she's a great mom. But uh, just that one time, it was like, you know, I was actually injured there. But besides that, I've never broken a single bone in my body. Um, I must oh, have hard I've broken, bones. I've broken multiple toes. I broke my middle finger once. That really sucked. Breaking yeah. digits really sucks because like there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah, it sucks. But yeah, for doing podcasts, uh, you don't need to do a lot of walking around. So I think you should be able to power through it. Um, but yeah. hopefully you'll get better and you'll be good by next week. Well, I don't know. I guess it takes a while for a bone to heal. So maybe in I a mean, month or I, so, however long it I, takes. You know, if it's if it's a fracture, it's a really small one. I think it's I think it's just like a really 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 deep like bone bruise. Hopefully, because because it is definitely not broken. I don't think. Like if I can if I can bend my toe and not like yell. I think it's okay. I mean, are you going to go to the doctor? Got to check that? Nah. If it was anything other than a digit, I would. But I, I've been to the doctor for multiple broken di- broken digits. And it's just like, yeah, that sucks. Uh, you want some really expensive aspirin? It's like, no, I'll, I'll buy my own aspirin. Mm. Capstone's gone and now it's back. So actually, last week uh, this happened, but you know, in the no man's land of uh, uh, the show being recorded and then published, and I it sucked because I was thinking, man, this is something that we could have been talking about, but we missed it by a day. But uh, I guess now we get to talk about it for this episode. But yeah, like I was a little bit worried, and I imagine you know, like anyone would be, because uh, mm. it was just a complete. I think it was a complete loss of communication, right? Yeah, for for a time. That's what I was wondering. Uh how you guys felt about that because i was very pessimistic i would have put the chances at greater than 50 that it was just a total failure i think i was probably thinking the same thing or maybe about about like 50 50 because i mean things do often tend to go right when they go wrong um so or at least there's a good chance of that so i was kind of holding out hope but i was thinking there's strong possibility that uh, they're not gonna get this thing back and then that would be it and that would suck because uh, we really need this. But um, uh-huh. at least it's not Lucy. Y- right. Yeah. <laughs> at least Lucy didn't lose communication. I mean, as an aside, Lucy has been making progress. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. If they had, I don't know if they had three degrees left to go. They got like, I don't know, two and a half of them back. <laughs> mm, okay. So they're, they're getting very close to 360. <laughs> yeah. So this happened on July 4th. Uh, a comms loss short, shortly after separation from the lunar photon, right? So remember, I do remember we were talking about how um, it's going to separate. I think, Ben, you thought it was going to separate later, right? Yeah, that was what I thought when we went into it. And then I was like, oh, okay, it's actually separating pretty early. So shortly after it separated, uh, there was a calm loss. So yeah, what was the cause of that, Dennis? Right. So so mercifully, at that point, it already deployed its solar panels and charges batteries and commissioned its propulsion system. So at least it wasn't just released as a dead thing that they then lost contact with. And so, yeah, I like I said before, I was pessimistic just because I don't know, I felt like things just weren't going to go right. 
but it turned out to mercifully be something that was fixable. And they already know what the issue is, too. So it's no longer one of these, you know, we get to speculate for the next 30 minutes <laughs> and then uh, explain in a short and sweet next week uh, what we got right and what we got wrong. Essentially, they were getting some uh, ranging data that they didn't like, I guess. Uh, and so the, the operations team tried to access some diagnostic data and sent an improperly formatted command that made the radio inoperable. It's, it, you know, Terran Orbital and Advanced Space are the ones that are basically doing the uh, mission ops along with, uh, you know, the Deep Space Network helping them out. And so I don't know exactly the details of this. <laughs> not only have they not really described it, but I just, I mean, it's software. And so that's always a little tricky uh, for me. That's, that's your jam, Ben, uh, much more than mine. I mean, they also haven't released much data on it, have they? Evidently, whatever that was, uh, the, the spacecraft's fault detection system should have been like, okay, you know, this is no good, and so we could just reboot and uh, try again, but there was apparently a fault in the flight software as well <laughs> that did not uh, uh, just reboot it when it got this, this bad command. Eventually, though, the software, the flight software was just, again, it's dead in the water for days now, and was able to clear the fault and come back alive and start communicating with ground again and what was crazy too is that there's all the you know the amateur i guess uh ham radio heads yeah. you know that were all <laughs> kind of uh tracking it and they mm -hmm. were they were the kind of the first people i think they were seeing tweets uh saying like uh we're not getting any signal from capstone anymore which is pretty wild yeah because I, I think that was the first thing that i read that this was actually coming from you know just like amateurs who are looking in that direction and not mm. picking anything up and saying hey um there's nothing coming off of this so yeah. what's going on there and then i think nasa probably released yeah, a statement or something exactly yeah while they were presumably working on it and trying to figure mm -hmm. out uh exactly what is going on yeah you had the uh the the amateur people who were already <laughs> happy to go and uh, uh, spread the word <laughs> before an official statement could come out. But yeah, uh, again, so I mean, it's back and they know what is wrong with it. And so hopefully that means that we shouldn't have any other communication issues like that, because that's one of the things that would have been so disappointing is that the 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 navigation, the cap system that, you know, you talked about last mm. week, that's going to be so cool <laughs> to check out. And so with the different radios on board and all the processing that needs to be done to be able to navigate autonomously just using LRO and not really talking to ground. That's super exciting, but at least this doesn't sound like something that will hopefully uh, affect that. Another cool thing, right? We talked about the BLTs, <laughs> the ballistic lunar trajectories, and that there is a lot of wiggle room because the idea is, right, you heave your chunk of metal out way, well beyond the moon's orbit, and then uh, the sun's third body uh, gets into the mix <laughs> and... Uh, basically, you know, puts you in the uh, sort of incoming trajectory on your way back, that'll put you in the uh, the uh, NRHO orbit around the moon, the near recollinear halo orbit. They had that wiggle room. So when you look at a lot of advanced spaces uh, schematics and such, they show the first of the three trajectory maneuvers happening while you were still within the lunar orbit, uh, about right 400,000-ish miles or sorry, 400,000-ish kilometers, but they still had the wiggle room to do this first one, which is uh, TCM-1A. Yeah, it, it, you could see that they did it basically a little beyond uh, the lunar uh, orbit, so at 465,000 kilometers. That's fine. It was delayed uh, a couple days, so instead of uh, July 5th, which was their original plan, they did it on July 7th, and uh, it was an 11-minute burn, uh, getting a delta V of 20 meters per second, uh, 
or 45 miles per hour or 72 kilometers per hour, whatever your favorite unit is. And so that basically just took the uh, the apogee from 1.2 million kilometers uh, a little further out to 1.4 million. And they didn't need to do this uh, TCM-1B either, uh, which is would have been the next one because it apparently clear, achieved 90% of the objectives for this series of maneuvers. And so as of our recording, the third possible burn that they had planned, uh, TCM-1C, uh, they were going to do it yesterday, as we're recording, but they decided to stand down so they could essentially analyze the orbit a little more carefully because it's a little wonkier. It's not, you know, a simple ellipse, <laughs> the type of orbit that it's going on. And so I guess if they get uh, some more data on it, they might not actually need it. Uh, and so that would be something if they end up just needing just the one TCM. So, yeah, you love when that happens. Right. Things are looking good. It's still got uh, a long time on its path because that's the whole thing, right? You save a lot of delta V and uh, by doing this type of trajectory, but it's on the out, uh, long outbound part of its BLT and it's on track to enter the uh, NRHO on November 13th. So we still got some months before it comes swooping back around and gets caught, so to speak, around the moon. <laughs> yeah. So, so the TCM-1 group, that's all before it's crossed the moon's orbit the first time, right? So TCM-1 is supposed to take place on its outbound leg uh, before it gets way out to like one and a half million kilometers uh, uh, from the Earth. And so, yeah, at that point, then there's the TCM-2 corrections that it can do. So it, it's going to okay. be doing some more maneuvering because the idea is that yeah. when it's out there then it brings its perigee out to the moon's orbit and it also does the inclination change to put it in the the you know the high inclination uh, uh nrho yeah so so it looks like i mean it, it's outside of the moon's orbit and it looks like it's about halfway between the moon's orbit and its tcm2 group which is actually keeping it i don't know if it's on an escape trajectory i kind of doubt it but it it pushes its orbit out, raises its perigee basically, um, so that it can come back in and slowly get captured in by the moon. Uh, so it's about it's about halfway to the TCM two group. It looks like, unless these numbers have changed, which is uh, apparently not the case. I have one question going all the way back to the fault detection with the the autonomous flight software. So you know, this, like you said, took place over a couple of days. So why did it take that long? Is it just because there are certain checks that are done like on a cycle? And that it might be a couple of days before the autonomous flight software clears uh, that particular error or... Good question. I was yeah. just wondering why it took days. I have no idea. I'm not yeah. sure how it can Lazarus itself back from the dead like that. <laughs> um, Mike has some helpful uh, comments in the chat saying uh, command loss timers are pretty common FSW safety features. Okay. Um, yeah, if you don't hear from the ground for so long, reboot, start backing off on security features, etc., yeah, that makes sense. I assume that that's part of the spacecraft fault detection system that should have rebooted it right away and didn't. They they specifically said that it should have and didn't, and it took the autonomous flight software system clearing the fault mm -hmm. later. So, like, yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe there's, like, multiple levels where, like, really basic stuff is done, you know, these basic checks are done constantly, and then there are higher level checks that are done where it's going okay well let's actually look at the data that i have and check this thing over here um so but... so when i reboot my stupid windows and it seems <laughs> to hang and i get kind of frustrated and 
do a hard power off if I just waited a few days, then maybe it would actually <laughs> reboot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so let's just do three short and sweet this week. Dennis, what is the first? First up, Minotaur 2 explodes. Only 11 seconds after launching from its test pad at Vandenberg Space Force Base, a Minotaur 2 test missile exploded last week. While it caused a fire at the base, the debris stayed in the immediate vicinity of the launch pad and there were no injuries. The Space Force routinely holds live tests of unarmed missile bodies in order to check how aging ICBMs are faring and to vet new technology. An investigation is underway to determine the cause of the explosion. Next up, X-37B beats its own record. The uncrewed X-37 space plane has recently broken its own mission duration record when it surpassed 780 days in orbit. Currently on its sixth mission, known as Orbital Test Vehicle 6, or OTV-6, the spacecraft has a number of classified payloads for the U.S. Space Force. Some payloads have been made public, however, including the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory Photovoltaic Radio Frequency Antenna Module, or PRAM, a device designed to convert solar power into microwaves, which can then be beamed back to Earth from orbit. And finally, Starship 24 readies for flight. SpaceX revealed a series of new images on Twitter, showing it has transported Ship 24, the Starship vehicle that will be used for its first orbital flight test to the pad at Starbase in Boca Chica, Texas. S-24 has a full complement of six Raptor engines, an even 3-3 split of sea level and vacuum optimized versions. Booster 7, the first stage that will propel Ship 24 to orbit, has been fitted with 33 new Raptor 2 engines and has already been lifted onto the orbital launch mount using the launch tower arms, aka the chopsticks. As of this recording, B-7 has had an ignition test, but is still waiting for its first static fire. While the company has conducted a number of high-altitude tests with Starship prototypes, this orbital launch will be the first to see the whole stack fly. All right, so let's do this week in spaceflight history. We have five winners. Uh, we have Deathkin, Hydrak the Greek, Akira, and Peter McMally. And they all guessed the correct event, but no one gets full credit because if you remember, I said that you have to guess the reason, the specific reason for this clue because I think that the clue by itself, it does not necessarily specify which event. We just know that something went wrong, right? Because you can kind of like, you can gather that much. The clue was no alarms and no surprises except the one. So um, the event was Luca Parmitano's leaky suit incident, which was on EVA 23 um, and also EVA 22, really. And we'll, you know, talk about that in a second um so we all know this incident this was um, pretty famous probably the one of the more dangerous things that's ever happened during an eva i don't know if it was the most dangerous but it's up there certainly for nasa i was gonna say leonov's it's gotta yeah. be at the at the topper at least next to it <laughs> but uh yeah so the clue no alarms and no surprises so i guess i should just get to exactly what what yeah, it was that i, I want to know what it is <laughs> so i've mentioned probably multiple times on this podcast you know i like radiohead so i decided to put some radiohead lyrics in the clue here so well it's kind of two parts to the clue so the first part of the clue no alarms and no surprises is a lyric from a song called no surprises by radiohead um, which is from their album okay computer back in the late 90s you know big album one <laughs> One of the more famous ones ever. So if you watch the music video, and I guess no one had ever seen it, um, it's the lead singer, Tom York, and he's it's like a close-up on his head, and he's wearing some kind of a helmet glass fishbowl-looking thing, and he's singing the song, and as he's singing, the helmet slowly starts to fill up with water until his face is completely submerged. I mean, his whole head is good encased Lord. in water there. He, yeah. Oh, and he has to hold his breath for like a good solid minute before it finally drains, and then he can finish singing the song. So like, if you did know that video, you would instantly know that 
what this is in reference to because it's yeah. kind of like the same thing. Um, yeah, he's like trying to sing a song while his helmet's filling up with water. Um, so yeah, that's the reason for the clue. Uh, anyway, the EVA. So this was actually Expedition 36. So this was um, Luca Parmitano. He was doing the spacewalk with Chris Cassidy. They came up on separate Soyuz vehicles. Um, I believe it was Expedition 35 and 36, respectively, I believe. But they both performed this particular spacewalk together. Um, and they did two spacewalks. They did EVA 22 just a week prior. Um, and that pretty much passed without, pretty much without incident, though there was a little bit of water leakage there too, which should have been a clue that something was wrong. Um, but that was kind of, you know, waved off as perhaps a leaky drink bag. Um, and that is a recurring explanation. And it kind of took a lot to get, you know, ground control convinced that this isn't because of his drink bag. But uh, just a quick rundown of the tasks they were going to complete, or I think most of which they did get done. Uh, they had to replace the camera on uh, the Japanese Exposed Facility Experiment Platform, relocate wireless television camera equipment, troubleshoot a bulky door cover. And I love that term. It's one of those NASA terms that I don't ever hear anywhere besides in the spaceflight industry. A bulky door cover for an electronic relay box. Uh, reconfigure the thermal insulation that was covering a failed electronics box that was removed from the us one year prior. So I think that they had just removed it and they, and they had it stowed, but they had to keep the thermal insulation on it. So they had to reconfigure that. Mm-hmm. And then they had to reroute power cables in preparation for the arrival of Nauka later that year, which I think is funny because this is 2013. I don't know if I gave the date, but yeah, it was <laughs> it was this week in July 2013 and they were expecting Nauka to arrive later that year. So they were rerouting power cables. Um, wow. Uh, that was uh, totally not necessary, really. <laughs> at least not for a good long while. Eight years later. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, the first EVA that they did, that was a success. But Luca did report once they had made ingress that there were a few drops of water. Not a lot, but, you know, there was some water that they couldn't quite account for. But I think at this point, everybody was thinking that it's just a leaky drink bags because you have these drink bags that obviously you can get water from. And um, in order to get water from them, you have to like bite down and that's actually the release valve. And so maybe that was faulty and that's how water was getting out. Yeah. So that was the theory. But on the following EVA 23, and I'm just going to kind of go down the time sequence here, or at least where relevant, I'll mention the times, because this all happens within a fairly short period of time, really. Um, so the first thing at 1235, the CO2 sensor goes off scale high. So basically, um, a sensor detects a lot of CO2. Again, I guess this is just dismissed as a faulty sensor because uh, things seem to be going well otherwise. And I suspect that faulty sensors aren't that uncommon. Um, but we now know that it's probably because the CO2 sensor was drowning in water. I don't know if that's how those work. Um, I guess it's just a lack of oxygen that is what causes it to go off. I don't know how those sensors work, but uh, yeah, it was tripped. And then at 12.41, six minutes later, Luca reports a lot of water on the back of his head. And the team on the ground suggests that it might be coming from a vent port and asks him to um, identify the source. So it seems that, you know, the vent port that they're referring to, I believe, is the one where it actually was coming from, which is towards, you know, the back of his helmet. Like there's a little ring with a slot in it, which leads to the oxygen circulation. So I think that, well, I don't know what they were thinking at this point because they had identified or they thought of this as a possible source of the water, but they that didn't seem to alarm them um, because they continue to 
kind of like wave it off and they say, oh, it's probably your drink bag. But yeah, Luca can't identify the source, but he doesn't think it's coming from his drink bag since it's accumulating on the back of his head. So it would have to migrate, I would think, you know, and there seems to be a lot of it. And he then confirms that the water seems to be increasing. Cassidy at this point suggested it might be sweat. He's like, are you sweating? Is it sweat? And he says, yeah, I'm sweating, but this is kind of a lot of water and, and it's very cold. I don't think it's sweat. Um, and he tastes a few drops of the water, which I, that's something that I wouldn't have thought of. Like, how about you taste it? Yeah. And, um, it was kind of like a metallic taste. And that right there should have told him, you know, it's not coming from the drink bag. Plus, I guess he drank it just because you want to get rid of the water. <laughs> so you should just try and drink as much of it as you can. Um, I suppose that was always an option. Just like drink, 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 you know. But um, then at 12.51, so this is about 10 minutes later, the EVA officer on the ground, Karina Eversley, she consults with uh, the EVA back room. Uh, so, you know, that whole team back there um, in order to determine if the EVA should be canceled. So at this point, they're getting a little bit more, you know, alarmed about this or something wrong. And um, Luca then drinks the remainder of the water in his drink bag. So you can kind of like eliminate that as a possible source. The water still seems to be accumulating. Uh, Chris takes a look at his helmet. He can kind of see it a little bit. And they both kind of estimate that there's about half a liter there stuck to the back of his head, which is a lot. And they actually did a rough calculation. You know, they did say that they filled up the drink bag just shy of a liter and that Luca had been drinking a lot of it and that he had just finished it, but there's still half a liter here. So the math doesn't add up. Like it can't be from the drink bag because he drank more than the amount that could have been there. So, you know, that's another indication. Um, so at this point at 1254, which is Three minutes later, uh, ground control concludes that the water must be coming from somewhere else. And uh, Karina discusses with the flight director if it could be coming from the EMU tanks or, again, possibly sweat. So they're just kind of like throwing everything out there. Maybe it's sweat, um, but it could be coming from somewhere else in the suit. Um, Luca suggests, and he's the first one to make this suggestion, that it's coming from the liquid cooling ventilation garment. Um, but, you know, they can't figure out how that could get into his helmet. But, yeah, you have, obviously, this cooling garment, which has these tubes that circulate all throughout the body in order to, or like all throughout the suit that covers you, um, and, and that's just to remove heat. And if that was leaking, and perhaps just because of a puncture, then I suppose maybe, but I believe in spacesuits, right? You have a neck dam. So as I understand, uh, things can't just drift up, so it, it would still have to be inside the actual system and then coming up that way, because um, it's not just going to drift up from somewhere on like your torso, let's say. And then Chris asks about his cooling, if he feels hot or whatever, and he says that he's not hot, and then he says try, you know, like adjusting the flow to see if the thing still works. Then um at this point, Luca asks the ground, hey, could this be because of a leak from the LCVG, which is a liquid cooling ventilation garment? I don't know if I got the acronym out of the way. But um they say that the data does not indicate that. Um and Luca says that that's good news. So I think he's feeling kind of like, you know, relieved at this point. Um that it, at at least the whole liquid cooling garment is not leaking because that would be a lot of water and he might overheat as well. But at this point at 1305, right? So this is um Pretty much exactly um, a half hour after the first indication that something was wrong. At that point, they call off the EVA. So um, Luca and Chris then make their way back to the airlock hatch, and they actually have to take different paths because they came from the airlock a different way. So they have these tethers, and so they kind of have to, you know, trace their steps back. And Chris didn't like the idea of leaving Luca 
by himself because he has all this water in his helmet and he's not ah. sure how things are going to go. And he said that it was a pretty hard thing to do to just like say, all right, I'll see you in a few minutes, although it was just a few minutes. So it's not like they had to be separated for too long, but that's the whole point of the buddy system there is that you should stay with the other astronaut. So they make it into the airlock, they close the hatch, they start an emergency repressurization sequence, which is where they basically skip a bunch of steps and they just try to get the thing repressurized as quickly as possible. Um, Luca is thinking in his head this whole time that he could at least purge what's in his helmet through a purge valve, which I didn't know that they had. I, uh, there's a purge valve somewhere in the helmet where you can let out air, apparently. Um, and I was kind of thinking the same thing, like, you know, it would be pretty cool if he could purge it, but I didn't think that there was actually a valve, but apparently there is. I don't know exactly where it's located, so I don't know how much of the water would actually get sucked out. But um, I guess if you need to, you can just open up a little pin or something. I don't know. And it, you can depressurize it. Do you know what the purpose of that might be, though? Is it just in case the suit starts to overpressurize, perhaps? Because I don't see why you would need to do that. Or, like, or is that just to equalize pressure in the final moment just before you take off the thing? It's actually an emergency device um, used uh, in, like, if you're losing pressure in your suit. To, to repressurize it. So it's actually to repressurize, but in this case, he was going to use it to depressurize it. I see. Yeah, it, mm. it, uh, uh, or it, it lets the oxygen purge system flow breathable gas through the PGA. PGA is the pressure garment assembly. I don't think we've actually said that. <laughs> just I, <laughs> I hate to throw acronyms around and just assume that people know what they mean because I didn't know what a PGA was uh, in, you know, 10 minutes ago before... I had read it 12 times. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, um, Chris is trying to get the hatch closed. I, apparently he was having a little bit of trouble and uh, quote, I thought this was a pretty cool quote. He said that he had the rest of Luca's life to get the hatch closed, which is a pretty stark way of, you know, saying that wow. he has to get the hatch closed. If not, then he might drown. Uh, so he was, you know, like focusing on that, getting the hatch closed so that they could, you know, then start to repressurize. But at 1335, which is nine minutes after they had initially closed the ex exterior hatch, that's when the interior hatch is open. So that's actually a pretty quick repressurization sequence. And I was kind of surprised about that because um, I think as I understand it, these suits are still at a pretty low pressure, right? Like it's not at station pressure. I think you're right. Yeah. Because it'd be really hard to like move around in a suit at 14 PSI. So they're equalizing pressure, but they're also increasing it. And I thought that they would have to be more like pre-breathing or something done, or they'd have to do it a little bit more gradually. And I know that this is an emergency situation, but still... I would think that yeah. you can only repressurize so quickly. There was talk. Um, Karen Nyberg, she was on the other side of the hatch there. She was on station at that time. She was thinking in her head that one thing she might have to do is to do a very quick repressurization where you pretty much just flood the thing with air, but that might bust their eardrums. And so that's, you know, like a, that's kind of like a last ditch thing. Right. Yeah, so, that would be faster than the highest acceptable <laughs> repressurization. <right. laughs> but uh, yeah, so the whole name of the game here is just get the thing repressurized and get them out of there so that we can get them out of the helmet. So after they get into the station, the helmet is removed three minutes later. So that's actually a pretty fast sequence of events there. Sorry, real quick. I want to apply a blanket, don't quote me, to everything I've said so far because <laughs> I'm looking at the uh, Apollo Operations Handbook for that, for the Apollo EMU, not for the uh, ISS EMU. <laughs> so I, like, I posted a photo in the chat of uh, 
of a diagram that showed the neck dam. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's, uh, the case for ISS. I'm going to re I'll come back. Give me a sec. <laughs> so they get the helmet off of Luca three minutes after they get him inside the station. That's pretty good. That's a uh, pretty spectacular. The whole incident took place over, you know, just over like half an hour from the time that they knew that something was wrong. So if things go south, you can do it in that amount of time and I didn't know exactly how long it would take but because there's so much involved in just doing an EVA this can be a very long process and generally it is a much longer one because they're not you know like using these emergency procedures so I guess under normal circumstances it you know would have taken probably quite a bit longer Um, but they kind of just you know cleaned up their work area and just headed in or or actually Luca just headed in Chris I think had to stow a few things and you know kind of like grab everything that he needed Mm -hmm. and take it with him Um, but he probably wasn't thinking about that too much at the time. So what caused this leak? So this is where um, I have to thank you two for helping me out here because I was trying to understand exactly what was going wrong here. Um, there were some terms that you know I kept seeing and things that I did understand, but then they weren't really expanding on exactly what had happened because uh, the PLIS, right, which is like the life support system backpack that you wear on you know the back of the suit, um, that, that thing is complicated. There's a lot going on there and trying to follow a diagram of what's going where is really difficult. Essentially, you have some water that's being circulated through the suit and there's a drum that spins that basically has to separate the water, I'm assuming from gas that might be inside the water as well. And I think that that's from like an O2 pressurization tank. So you have to pressurize the water in like in order to push it through the suit. Um, but since you are not a rocket moving through space, you don't have like ullage, you don't have this head space and then the liquid below, you're just kind of have everything floating around. So there's going to be O2 bubbles in there. So you have to separate it out. And that's what the drum is for. Um, so the drum spins and uh, the water moves to the exterior of the drum and then it can then be drained. Um, but in this case, there was something clogging it. The water that then spilled over into an O2 circulation vent. And that's what was vented up through the back of his helmet and onto the back of his head. Mm. So at first I was kind of confused, but Ben, you kind of explained why these two systems would be so close to each other. And they're basically all on the same motor or they're all like operating on, yeah, I guess like the same motor, right? Um, that's, a, yep. I guess, the best way that I can put it. Yep. So that's why they're in close proximity. I'm still kind of surprised that they're like open enough that something could feed from one circulation system into another because they really shouldn't have anything to do with each other. But I guess this drum is the problem because it it is separating the O2 from the water. And so the O2 goes in one direction, the water goes in another direction. But if the water's backing up, then you can kind of see how things might go wrong. So that's kind of my best, you know, initial understanding of what happened without getting into the details because I couldn't quite grasp exactly what loop was going where and through what whatever Hmm. um and then uh ben you put in um an interesting thing having to do with uh the airlock cooling loop recovery the ion beds that were used to uh remove these contaminants so basically what um happened is uh you have these tanks that are on board the suit and apparently like because the these suits were being used way past their shelf life uh by quite a number of years, you were getting some deposits that were forming, they were coming off of the inside of the tank. And that's what was clogging this filter. They came up with a solution to this problem. I don't know if you want to talk about it because you yeah. kind of wrote this up. Yeah. Cause you're, you're close, but not, not quite. Oh, on yeah. It. I figured I got something wrong. <laughs> so yeah, no, no. So basically after the Columbia incident, um, the, the Columbia disaster, um, three EMUs in particular were left on board ISS. Um, and so they were up there long enough that um, they wound up having this fan pump separator assembly stop working. And 
they dug and dug and dug and finally found, ah, there are these uh, mineral deposits on uh, the rotor in the pump section. And so when they started looking for where these deposits could have come from, uh, they found that the uh, the heat exchanger in the airlock. So when you are in the airlock, you can plug your EMU into a bunch of uh, electrical hookups and, and gas hookups and water hookups so that your EMU isn't having to spend its, it, you know, its battery life basically. Yeah. Um, mm. And you can, you can, run off of the station's uh, life support equipment. And so the, the heat exchanger uh, was uh, releasing nickel and silicon ions into the water. And those, uh, those ions ended up forming those deposits that jammed up uh, the fan pup separator assembly. And so what they did uh, to solve that problem was they developed the, A, the ALCLR, uh, which you mentioned the the airlock cooling loop recovery, and so it's a bunch of ion beds um, that can soak up these these free ions in the water loop in the airlock. So they're solving a problem, and unfortunately, when they solved that problem, they didn't solve it good enough. I, I mean, actually, technically, this should be fine, um, but it turns out that the processing on the ground before the thing was launched. Uh, was in some way improper. I'm not exactly sure what led to this, but, um, but those filters wound up having very, quote, various levels of contaminants introduced into them. And so once they fly, instead of filtering out all the contaminants, they were actually dumping additional contaminants into that water loop. Um, oh, and so that's, that's why we wound up with the deposits blocking the holes in the water separator drum. Uh, it's just, it, it's like hard water deposits on earth, uh, just, you know, different, uh, chemical composition. Yeah. It kind of even looks like it cause you can see photos and it's like just crud and it looks like, it looks it, like hard it, water deposits. It looks me. like toilet paper to me. Oh really? It looks hard like, rocky I, to me. Oh yeah. It, it looks, it looks fluffy to me, but yeah, it's, uh, it's just like hard water buildup and you know, you, they solved one, you know, quote unquote, hard water issue and, and caused another one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, thanks for that clarification. Cause, uh, that was a whole other aspect of this that I didn't, uh, even really take into yeah. consideration. It was really fun to track down and I've got a couple of reports in the show notes. I think I've got the original, uh, report that NASA did right away where they're like, we don't know why this happened, but here's, you know, here's our best guess. And then a later investigation where they actually identify uh, a number of root causes and, and this is the the primary root cause. Speaking of root causes, right? So that's the root cause. So the cause of the mishap per the mishap investigation board, um, and they're pretty merciless. Um, and Ben, you had talked about this just prior to recording. They have a funny way of wording things. So I guess the first thing in the uh, report that I read was that the causes were obviously, just as we said, there was some kind of inorganic material that had caused a blockage in the drum holes in the Seuss water separator, and that caused it to spill into the vent loop. Um, the second thing is that the NASA team lacked the knowledge regarding this failure mode. So they just didn't know about it. And again, like if you recall, the EVA officer was talking with the EVA backroom and they were all talking about everything. No one really suggested this is a possible cause. So there was clearly a failure there. The mishap investigation board essentially said, you know, you should have known about this. Uh, that was kind of the, you know, the tone of uh, that report because mm. it's their job to be experts on the suit and they didn't even consider that as a possible failure mode. So 
And yeah, I can see their point. The other cause was a misdiagnosis of the prior failure during the first EVA that they had done, uh, the EVA 22. Uh, so something went wrong there and they dismissed it as a drink bag problem when in fact it was not. So they shouldn't have pushed forward. They should have, you know, at that point, I guess canceled the EVA, looked into ex- exactly what caused this, but uh, they didn't do that. They just said, oh, it's this drink bag. Get back on the suit and do it again. Uh, so <laughs> kind of surprising that no one thought anything more of this, but I guess it's reasonable to assume if it's just a small amount of water the first time that maybe it leaked from the drink bag. Now, one thing about the suits, and I had read this in the same mishap investigation board uh, report, which is like 200 and something pages, towards the beginning, I thought it was interesting that I didn't know this, and this is the part of the twist of where I ask you, have we talked about this before? Because I always do that. (laughs) The EMU was originally designed for shuttle failure modes. Shuttle failure modes. I... I feel like that's something that if we had talked about it, I would remember. But again, I don't. So I'm assuming that we didn't. But did we ever talk about that before? No, not with me, at least. <laughs> yeah. So the suit apparently was designed just to address shuttle failure modes. It was not meant for EVAs to repair satellites or anything like that. It was just in case something went wrong on shuttle. Um, they listed two specific scenarios, which is the first one, if the shuttle bay doors don't close. Um, they didn't say exactly how a spacesuit helps in that situation. I'm guessing that maybe you can go out and manually try and shut them or something. Yes. I don't know. Um, yes. because you're not coming back otherwise. So I guess that that's the only thing. Yeah. They do. do they don't they have like a crank essentially at the back of the payload bay? Oh, yeah. You can manually yeah. close them yeah. as opposed to physically trying to force them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Cause I was thinking close. more like the last twist if that I did where the shuttle bay doors wouldn't close, not because like there was anything wrong with the motors, but because it was like actually being physically jammed. And so I don't know how an astronaut's going to fix that. Right. Um, so I, well, I suppose it's possible. But yeah, that's STS-4, right? Uh, yeah. 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 And then the other scenario, and this is an interesting one, is if they need to be re- if they need to be rescued by another shuttle, or if a shuttle needs to board. I, I'm assuming a shuttle that is no longer crewed. So if you have to go into the shuttle depressurized through the hatch on the side, um, these suits have to be able to get in through the hatch. So that was a constraint on how big they can be. Oh. And I thought that was crazy because, like, is that a realistic scenario? But they, but again, this is probably way back when they were first conceiving of the shuttle and they were thinking of a lot of things like the shuttle had this whole other purpose too um Mm. it ended up being something completely different um it was more i think originally like a space commando transportation system so well originally it was a space truck for assembling space station and then it became all these other things including a commando vehicle but yeah like so i mean if you think about what it must have been like going from Apollo and capsules only to an airplane in space. There are so many more failure modes. And, and one of them, I, I think the primary one that everybody was worried about, uh, other than the heat, the, the heat shield, the tiles was these, these doors. I mean, it's a, it's a two giant moving, well, four giant moving parts. That if they fail, you're not coming home in that vehicle. Like you, it's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Um, and so th- those two eventualities, the doors and the heat tiles really drove a, a lot of, uh, our worrying, but also a lot of our design. And, you know, there were a lot of good things came out of foreseeing those as issues, even though we wound up having one of them still bite us in the butt. And I say us as, as humans, right? I I don't, I don't work Mm -hmm. for NASA, but like, yeah, it's, it's totally unsurprising, um, that the EMU was designed with, uh, with this one purpose, uh, in the, in the forefront. I don't think it was Mm -hmm. the only reason that they developed it. I think it's 
uh, a contributor to some of the design constraints. But like, yeah, that that shouldn't surprise anybody uh, with the amount of 2020 hindsight that we have now. That that's really a a solid logical leap and, and a good one. Thank goodness we never had to go rescue a stranded shuttle. So when they're talking about the hatch openings to the flight deck, so that's not the the, <laughs> the side one that they ingress when they actually fly. And I don't think that could be referring to the inner deck ones because those are tiny, like a human could barely fit through them, let alone a suit. So maybe they're talking about getting through the ceiling or something? That's what my impression was that they were talking about right. the the hatch on the top that is tiny so i mean it didn't say it just said get through let me see where it says uh, to pass through shuttle hatch openings plural to the flight deck so that's what it says um, plural. but if you're coming through the top yeah if, if you're coming through the top that wouldn't be the case right but maybe it just wasn't written right well, i don't know i don't know because the early one right i mean we we're talking about the the ejection seats the early ones had two hatches obviously that you know yeah ejection seats were going to blow through so maybe an early columbia that would have been normal verbiage, but yeah, because the the overhead only the I guess the port side one would blow. No, I love that, and it's and it's a shuttle trivia. Oh, it's the best trivia. <laughs> oh, you think you figured it out? Signi- yeah, yeah. Sorry, I did. Significant requirement differences between shuttle and Apollo's EMUs. One of them for shuttle is constrained front to back dimension for interdeck mm-hmm. hatch access. It is the interdeck hatch. Interdeck. Yeah. Okay, so it is interdeck. How on earth? Yeah, that's that's just I I didn't realize that they could fit through that tiny little <laughs> hatch. That's so crazy. So. That's, the know. things look so freaking bulky and huge. So before we go on, Cy Kyle in the chat, thank you, Kyle, uh, has a on the spot, very small correction burn, <laughs> as he puts it. So he went and talked uh, to Doctor Tess Caswell, who's been on the show before. Uh, She's awesome. And she confirmed that the, the modern EMU does not have a neck dam anymore, uh, unlike uh, the Apollo uh, EMU. So, yeah, thank you, Kyle, and thank you, Dr. Caswell. So that's your This Week in Spaceflight History, a harrowing tale of uh, <laughs> drowning in a helmet or, you know, almost, <laughs> which is of all the terrifying ways to die in space. That's one that I do not want. Um, nope. and, uh, People should be more afraid of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, David, that was really good. Uh, you know, I love me some ISS history and this is ISS history and spacesuits together. Like it's, it's great. Uh, <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Um, next week is the 19th through the 25th of July. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1992, I Think that's how you say it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, <laughs> coccyx. That's your tailbone, right? Yep. Cool. So if you have a guess for what this means, uh, go ahead and shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just have, uh, I guess, two and a half events. But it's a super exciting launch, this first one. And so yep. this is delayed, so you'll be hearing again about the potential maiden flight of Vega C. And so this would be on July 13th, taking the payload Lares 2. Uh, to orbit. And uh, again, right, this is the uh, maiden flight for Vegas C. Hopefully it'll be able to launch because that's going to be pretty cool. The time is 1113 UTC instantaneous launch, and it will be flying out of Kourou, French Guiana. 
So Godspeed, Vegasy. So after that, on the 15th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching a Dragon a CRS-25. So this is a commercial crew resupply to the International Space Station. Uh, that'll be launching at 044 UTC on the 15th. But if you're in America anywhere, it's going to be the previous day at night. So just remember that. So the evening of the 14th, or very or very early in the morning on the 15th, one of the two. Um, this will be launching from Space Launch Complex 39A at the Cape, so uh, you can always check that one out. Yes, yeah, so Ben, you have the uh, rest of this. Yeah, so uh, the coverage of the rendezvous and docking up at the ISS is going to be on NASA TV. Uh, that's going to be uh, July 16th, uh, Saturday. The coverage is going to begin at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The docking is scheduled for 11.20 a.m. Eastern Time, and it's a docking, not a capture because uh, we don't do berthings with dragons anymore. So those are your upcoming space flight events. And with that, let's do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, McMally, Mike, Leon Running Man, Chubby, Greek, Psy Kyle, Chris, and Kenton for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave Leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com, and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's all. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.